culture doesn't take you to some higher plane where problems disappear, right? You're still human beings, frail, making mistakes. They do take you to a higher plane where you actually see those problems early and you can deal with them. You can face toward them, not ignore them. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Today's quote is from the late business management guru, Peter Drucker, and that is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Our guest today, Daniel Coyle, has looked inside some of the world's highest performing groups, including the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6, Pixar, and the San Antonio Spurs, and lays out what their success has in common in his newest book, The Culture Code. Daniel is also the New York Times bestselling author of The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, and The Secret Race, which was co-authored with former professional road bicycle racer Tyler Hamilton. He and Hamilton also won the William H. Sports Book of the Year Prize in 2012. When he's not churning out award-winning, best-selling books, he's a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and works as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians. So, Daniel, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us on Outperform today. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's fun to be here with you. Great. So, first question is, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Whoa. Um, no, actually, completely, completely uh, did not know that. Didn't have a clue. Actually, I was absolutely convinced until I was 20. Uh, that I was going to be a doctor. My dad was a doctor. I knew a lot of doctors. That was my, my windshield was filled with them. And so that was it. But then uh, had a little moment and realized, boy, what makes my heart beat fast? And it was not scalpels. It was not operating rooms. It was that moment in the week when the new edition of Sports Illustrated arrived in my mailbox and uh, figuring out how, how those guys did it and how they, what that was made of and that different sort of magic of storytelling. That, that's what really caught hold. But I always kept that kind of doctors, I guess in some ways, you know, my writing career has been about x-raying things um, and seeing what's underneath the surface and seeing what makes things tick. So it's been kind of this mix of science and journalism and storytelling. So you could have been a radiologist. Exactly. That was my dad. I was a, my dad and my brother. They're both radiologists. So I was right in line. So you, it just materialized a little differently for you. That's right. I have a different machine. It's called a pencil. So you worked for outside for 25 years. How did that job come about? You know, they were, uh, I was living in Chicago and they were the, the only game in town, the coolest game in town. I was, I grew up in Alaska and uh, always really loved the outdoors and the idea that they were for some strange reason in downtown Chicago. Uh, and uh, when I found that out, it was, uh, ended up being sort of destiny. At the time I was still, I think I got the internship by promising to help deliver the managing editor's baby. They were, she was pregnant and that's why they had to hire interns. And so I said, well, I have this pre-med background. So if things go south, I can help you deliver the baby. So maybe, maybe that's why I got the job. But after getting in there, it was, it was a good time to be there. There was a lot, was a lot happening, uh, a lot of great writers, a lot of good writing, a lot of creative thought. And there were some editors there that I just learned a ton from. And so it was a fortunate place to be and I've kept up the relationship. So I've, I've been really excited to talk with you about culture today as it's a subject I'm passionate about. And before the culture code, you wrote the talent code. And I've been curious to ask you, was there something in your research in that book that led you to look at culture as enabler of performance? Yeah, there was. I mean, every book is like a mystery story, right? You find the biggest, most 
obsessive mystery you can to dig into. And you know, about 10 years ago, I started looking at these talent hotbeds, like these, these little places around the planet that produce impossible numbers of talented chess players and mathematicians and athletes and business people and, and looking at that. And when you go to these places, um, you know, it was a book about learning in the brain. It was a book about how individuals get great. And then though, you reach the end of that mystery and there's another one, which is, hey, there's something really cool happening in these places that I can't quite put my finger on. They have this, this way of interacting, this vibe. We have these words that we use to talk about special places, like, oh, they have a great vibe, or oh, they just have great chemistry, or they have great culture. Those, all those words are kind of interchangeable. And I was, I was seeing that in some of these places. And I remember, actually, it was at this tennis club in Russia called Spartak that's produced way more top 20 players in the entire United States, actually. And there was a new player who showed up and she was uh, young. Uh, she was very shy. She wasn't sure she wanted to be a part of this. And I saw the head coach go over to her and say, just took five seconds. She goes, hey, I'm glad you're here. And then she says, hey, do something for me. And she has a tennis ball in her hand and she tosses a tennis ball to this new kid and the kid catches it. And there was something in that interaction that just absolutely blew me away. You know, this girl from being went from being a scared outsider at this very impressive place to feeling connected, to feeling like part of a tribe. And that, that tennis ball is what sent me on this journey of looking at great cultures around the planet, you know, and then seeing where, where are they? How are they communicating? How are they creating that connection and making people feel deeply connected, getting that vibe of trust and cooperation, all those things that we can sense that's not magic. Like it's, it sort of seems like magic when you're in a great school or you're in a great restaurant or a great family or a great business or a great startup. Like it's like, oh, they just have it, right? Well, it feels like magic, but it's not magic actually. It's this system. It's this process that I got fascinated by figuring out being a radiologist and saying, hey, if we could x-ray that, what would that show? What's the pattern that they're following that's, that's clearly lighting up our brains in these extraordinary ways? So when you have a thesis like that for a book, wh where did you start for the culture code? Yeah, I started with the science. I mean, I started digging into all the all the research I could around chemistry, cohesion, science, and you and you quickly get into you know some of it is kind of you know incredibly academic and ivory tower, but a lot of it's really fascinating. There's a guy named Richard Hackman out of Harvard who's basically had this you know he, he flew around with with different types of teams. Um, he studied orchestras. He studied cockpit crews. And you start to dive into that research and you very quickly see these patterns kind of emerge and they, they have to do with how do people connect? And the way that we normally, there's a lot of, it's funny because there's so many sort of ways that we normally think about culture. We think about leadership and trust and integrity and teamwork and mission and values. And you have to sort of purposely strip all that from your mind and just think of it from this kind of deep evolutionary psychology perspective where okay, you got this one group of people and they're all sort of all over the place. What gets them to act like one group? To strip away all the words like trust and teamwork and everything and just look at the function. What functions are happening? And it becomes really apparent. There's just a few. Like there's really just one function is like, how do they connect? Like how do they get from this scattering to a single group? And then the next question is like, how do they share information? Like how do they cooperate? Now that they're connected, okay, they're connected. How do they share information? What triggers that? And then the third thing is like direction. Like how do they know where to go? How do they know what's important and what's not important? So whether you're talking about a, a flock of birds, a school of fish, Navy SEALs, Pixar, they've all got to do those three basic functions. And it's, it's like this deep grammar. It's like this deep grammar of cohesion. These, these signals are being sent and received 
And we are built, evolution has built us to respond to these signals of connection, of cooperation and of direction. Yeah. And, and so can you walk through you, the three universal rules that you found across all the organizations that you looked at? Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of three and you can kind of think of them as a grammar, really. It's like this deep language of, of signaling. And it's about, it's not about what you say. It's about behaviors. It's a called, they're signaling behaviors. They're behaviors that send a strong signal. And the first behavior that sends a strong signal is safety. Signaling that you are safe, that you are safe here. Sending a simple, quick behavioral signal that shows you see someone, that your futures are connected. And those signals, you know, we typically think of safety as something that kind of descends, certain groups have, certain groups don't. They get delivered in really clear moments. And, and the science has kind of isolated. You can isolate specific moments, specific signals that create that kind of connection that we think of as a family type connection. So that's the connection, the signals of safety. The second rule is sharing vulnerability. That's how, how do human beings exchange information? They send signals of openness. They send signals of openness. So that signal, and which is a weird one because normally you think of high-performing groups, you think of people who are confident, you think of people who know the answer, who are experts and you aren't hesitating and being vulnerable. When you dig into those groups, when you spend time with them, you see that they are constantly creating these signals of mutual vulnerability, admitting weakness, confessing problems, telling the truth about themselves and about the other people. And that operates in kind of a loop. So sharing vulnerability, it's not enough for one person to do it. Both people have to sort of share the vulnerability. The whole group has to share it. And then the third group has to do it. Third set of signals has to do with direction. What way are we going? What's important? And groups that are successful about that are really, really good at over-establishing purpose. It's flooding the windshield with these really clear metaphors, stories, language that drives attention and behavior in a specific direction. And so those are the three, and you can kind of think of them as really, really on a functional level. Like we got to connect. Well, human, we have an we have an algorithm in our brain that responds to signals of safety. We want to share information if we want to work well together. That's where vulnerability is that trigger. And then we have this this way of where are we going together, and that's where purpose is the trigger. So this sort of deep grammar of connection that that all these places share and speak, and that you know culture is something that typically people look on it as a soft skill yeah that it's something that's nuanced and it's really unique to each group it's deeply untrue i mean it's not a soft skill all these are about clarity actually it's about really being really clear when you're around a good culture they're really clear with their signaling and it's not individual to each group it's this sort of much more universal language that has to happen over and over again it's these these signals and for a good visual you can kind of picture a flock of birds moving through the sky, navigating a treescape all together. They're always signaling signals of connection. They're always cooperating. They're always sort of aware of which, where each other is. They're not hiding from each other. And then they're also moving in the same direction. So if you think about that, culture is about being simple and clear. Yeah, you know, Patrick Lencioni writes a lot around clarity and how that affects organizational performance, just making sure that everyone understands what the the game is being played. We've always had a lot of value about that. You talked about safety, safety and belonging. Is that sort of one and the same? Because I know you talked about yep. belonging. Yep. Yep. Safety creates belonging. Got oh, So it precedes belonging. And and one of the things I think was really interesting in the book that you said that a lot of groups perceive that trust precedes vulnerability, but it's actually vulnerability that creates trust and that the leader sets the tone for that. Right. 
So it's so weird. You normally think like, okay, I'm going to trust you before I'm going to be vulnerable. That's how we normally, normally think of it. But as these groups show us, and as the science shows us, we have it exactly backwards. You know, vulnerability, moments of vulnerability create trust. When I was, when I was visiting uh, the leaders of these, of these different groups, they were extraordinary about sending signals of openness. When I was at Pixar and I was walking around with uh, Ed Catmull, who's the, he's the head of Pixar. And at one point we're walking through this gorgeous building and I said, Hey, this is like the coolest building I've ever been in. And he turns and looks me dead in the eye and says, actually this building was a huge mistake. <laughs> I remember that really? huge mistake. And then he sort of, you know, start talking about, it. he starts listing the ways in which they made a mistake. The hallways are too narrow and the atrium's in the wrong spot. And, and the biggest mistake though, is that we made all these, we spent all this money and we didn't realize we were making a mistake. So just incredible openness that is stunning when you're around it, but it sends, and it sends this really powerful signal that, Hey, we tell each other the truth here. And I want you to tell me the truth. And that signal of openness is really a strength. You know, in most places people have a, I know Robert Keegan calls it a secret second job. And it's like, (laughs) most places you have a secret second job for maintaining your status, right? Like that's what you spend a ton of time and energy thinking about and worrying about and behaving about. And in places where there's safety, they have bandwidth to do extra stuff because they're not spending it on, on this other stuff, this other stuff of saying, Oh, you know, I'm not sure if I trust you. So I'm going to spend all this energy maintaining my status. How much does information play into this? I'm curious. And in, in the businesses maybe that you've looked at even outside the book, did the majority lean towards more open book principles and, and free sharing of information versus kind of closed and secretive? It depended on the structure of the business. Sometimes there are certain structures in businesses that make sharing difficult. But for the most part, they were definitely biased toward that. I mean, when we think about, when we think about vulnerability and trust, we have to think of kind of of the emotional component, you know, that, oh, it's this, this painful emotion. And it's true. There's definitely an emotional component to those moments of saying, Hey, I screwed up here, but the deeper reason for it is not emotional. The deeper reason for it is informational, you know, so that we can build a shared mental model of what we're doing together. You know, we can't operate if we're hiding stuff uh, from each other. And so those groups, that's why they biased a bit toward oversharing, you know, in, in some ways a bit. You often see stand-up meetings, quick meetings, interdepartmental, where it's just designed to create awareness of what's going on in the company, not necessarily to make a decision or anything else like that, but it's more like a dashboard. Okay, here's what we're working on, here's what you're working on, here's what you're working on, just so everybody has got that shared awareness of what's happening in that context that can drive good decisions. So one of the examples moving away from business that I thought was really interesting in the book, you said when the computers crunched all the the data and looked for coaches, you know, the equivalent to sort of baseball wins above replacement, when it looked for coaches who won more games than they should have based on their talent, that Greg Popovich came above and beyond everyone else. No Bill Belichick. I was sad to see. But I can you give us a sense of what in your time with him, what what does he do so well? You know, I sensed a little bit of Brad Stevens uh, in Greg Popovich, but what what do these coaches, you know, do incredibly well who seem to just, you know, make wins out of whatever talent that they have? Yeah, we often like, we often think that there's a dichotomy between like, I'm either going to be tough or I'm going to be nice, right? Like I have to choose as a leader, whether or not I'm going to be a tough style or nice style. And what was stunning about Popovich is he did both. As one of the assistant coaches summed up, he's like, Pop does two things. He loves you to death and he tells you the truth. And that, that is so, I, I was captured when I spent time there. They, they, they lost the game the night before I came there, lost a big game to Oklahoma City. 
First thing Popovich does walking on the court is he goes right to the guy who missed the big shot last night and starts talking about the dinner that Pop had arranged for the player and his wife and the wine that Pop had ordered for the player and his wife. Just they, they use food as this incredible vehicle of connection over and over again where they eat together more often than most families. And then instead of watching game film, uh, they go in to watch game film and what up pops a CNN documentary about the Civil Rights Act and Pop starts asking them, what would you have done? You know, this incredible curiosity about them and about them as a whole person, as a person who enjoys dinner with their wife and a person who thinks about civil rights. And um, it was stunning. You know, he was much more than a coach. He loved them to death and he told them the truth. And those things went together. You know, we're wrong about nice and tough. We shouldn't divide them. Actually, if, if you are really, really, really loving and really, really, really high standards, those kinks can match up. Not to say it's without, you know, it's without challenges. Not to say that any of these places have it completely figured out. Basketball fans out there know that San Antonio's had their difficulties this year, and some of it has been around cultural questions, players who have kind of checked out, one player in particular. But the thing that struck me about great cultures is that they're not immune to problems. In fact, they're probably more in tune with their own problems than anybody else is. Culture doesn't take you to some higher plane where problems disappear, right? You're still human beings, frail, making mistakes. They do take you to a higher plane where you actually see those problems early and you can deal with them. You can face toward them, not ignore them. And so rather than being governed by the tensions, you can govern the tensions a little bit. And that was, I, I had sort of gone into it with the thought that, oh no, when you get to Pixar and Navy SEAL Tim, Team Six, like all the tensions disappear and everybody's walking on clouds. It's like, no, not at all. In fact, they have harder conversations, more candor and more conflict is actually a sign of a culture that might be more in touch with what's really going on, a stronger culture where it's safe to disagree. You know, there's some themes that I've seen in different leadership uh, writings across the year where when and how, so, so the loving and tough, is there some time themes you saw? Like when are they tough and when are they supportive? Like when are you patting on the back and when are you doing your yelling? Is there anything consistent that you've seen in terms of how that's delivered? Yeah, the pat on the back is sort of like first, right? It's yeah. always first. You always see the whole person first. And when it comes to those moments of, of intense truth-telling, I think they're delivered with a lot of intent. It's delivered in a context of lots of signals of connection, lots of signals of support, and kind of high-octane, very clear uh, signals. And those signals of toughness are always delivered in kind of a social context. Like, hey, we have high standards here. I'm not picking you out. In fact, there was this Stanford study that I wrote about in the book a little bit, and they, they determined that the most effective feedback, they called it magical feedback, was really simple. It was where they explain the reasons given the feedback. The feedback is something like, hey, I'm giving you this feedback because we have high standards here, and I believe you can reach those standards. So it's like this always these messages of warm candor, where they're saying, hey, I got a tough truth. And the reason I'm giving you this is because we're all connected and we're all trying to get to some tough place together. It's hard to solve, you know, we're solving tough problems. Um, nothing here is easy. So there is that sense of like always that dual message. I'd call it a dual message of, of connection and candor. Actually, there was um, a, a waitress on her first day at this great restaurant, uh, Union Square Cafe. Very, it's like the Pixar restaurant. It's a really good restaurant, very high, high quality staff. And the manager came over and the woman had been training uh, like a six months for this moment. And the manager came over right before she was about to go out and said, Hey, if you don't ask me for help 10 times today, it's going to be tough, which was kind of a hell of a message, right? Like, but really it was truth. It was really you ask for, you know, you're going to mess up 10 times today for sure. Like that's just what's going to happen. But look for me, 
you know, that dual message is what's powerful where it's not just, he could have said, you're going to get your head handed to you today. That would have been true, you know, but it wouldn't have been connective. And so this message of truth plus connection seems to be the one that the sweet spot to land in. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I also read, there was a book years ago by one of my um, college professors called The Leadership Moment. And he talked about how a lot of the feedback, Joe Torrey, you know, got all over his players when they were up 10-1 to do something right and to not, you know, run to the base late and to make the little play. But whenever anyone made a mistake, that was not when he got on them. And similarly, they saw that most of the people actually die on the way down from Everest when everyone is kind of lackadaisical and letting go and not when they're in the heightened sense and need the encouragement on the way up. So there's probably some, some DNA of that in here in terms of how and when you deliver the right messages. But I, I wrote down that line after your book, the, we have high standards here and I know you can meet them because I think that's incredibly powerful and is similar very similar to what we're going for from a DNA. I was thinking that's a great sort of new hire talking point. Yeah, right, right. To set that bar and make it really clear. And, and just because you're trying to be excellent doesn't mean you, you can't connect, you know. And and that, that old choice you face all the time when you're, when you're managing a group of people, you kind of have that choice between progress, being tough, making the progress and, and being productive and stopping and pressing pause and like going back and connecting with your people. Right. And it seems to me that the good cultures always, whenever they're faced with that dilemma, will bias toward people rather than bias toward progress. You know, if there's a tension, if there's a big project to happen, if there's all this progress that has to happen, they're constantly attending to the team dynamics along with trying to make progress. So 
to me, that's another sort of deep pattern that emerges that there's never a point where they say, screw it, we got to make this deadline, do whatever you can. They always are saying, hey, what do we need to do to support our people? How's the team doing? You know, they're always checking in to see if they're in a good spot and how they can help. Great. Thanks, Daniel. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com slash 10 off and get 10% off your subscription. All right, welcome back, everyone. So, Daniel, before the break, you mentioned a few times working with Navy SEALs Team 6. You know, the environment they work in is far from safe. So I'd love to hear some of the insights that you learned about how they create safety and a strong culture in the types of environments that they operate in. Yeah, no, it's incredible to see those, to see the way they solve problems and the way how, how unmilitary it is. I guess when I went in, I thought, oh, there's going to be very confident commanders who really know all the answers. And with SEAL Team 6, I found kind of the opposite. I, I went to the Navy SEALs and I started asking around, like, who's the best Team 6 leader you know? And I kept hearing the same name over and over again. People said, you got to talk to Dave Cooper, Dave Cooper, Dave Cooper. And Dave Cooper, who had recently retired, uh, so he could talk, was the guy who trained SEALs Team 6. He was not the best shot. He was not the best swimmer. He was not the best in shape. He was not the best at close quarters combat, but he was the best at like creating this incredible cohesion. And his story was fascinating in and of its own. He had had some run-ins with authority figures in the military and had realized the supreme importance of leaders who admit weakness. In fact, he said, the most important four words a leader can say is, I screwed that up. And with his teams, when I mean, there's there's this authoritarian default that we all go to when the when the person in charge walks in the room, he would go so far out of his way. In fact, he would he would forbid the people to call him commander. He would constantly sort of interleave his speech with, I might be wrong here, anybody have any ideas? He would constantly look for reasons for himself to sort of disappear to see how the team would function on its own. Always tending to the team dynamic and sending a persistent signal that they owned it. Uh, that they own the best ideas, that they own the worst ideas. And they had this wonderful kind of cultural calisthenic on the SEALs team that really brought this home. For me, it's like the one thing that any group out there could do. It's so easy to do and it's so powerful and it's called an AAR, an after action review. And in the SEALs that manifests itself by whenever they finish a training mission, whenever they finish any kind of a mission, the first thing they do before they sleep, before they have a meal is they circle up and they talk about how it went. Where did we fall apart? Where was it good? Where was it bad? What are we going to do differently next time? They're really actually hard meetings to have because you just finished this thing. And the last thing you want to do is kind of go back and watch the tape together and admit fault and confront the weaknesses. You want to gloss over it. You all came back. You survived. You, you, you know, whatever it was. 
But to actually go back and face that, own that, and to try to build a shared mental model of what really happened is incredibly powerful. But most groups don't do it. Whenever we finish a project with a group, whether it's you know any kind of project, there's a tendency to high five and walk away um, and just tell everybody, good job, good job. But to actually sit down and to go over in detail what went well, what didn't go well, and what you're going to do differently next time. It's funny, actually, because... As part of these conversations, there was an opportunity recently for some SEALs to come observe heart surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic. There were, uh, so there was a bunch of SEALs that came in. The heart surgeons did this intricate aneurysm fix uh, with 11 people, 11 nurses and doctors working on this one patient. And the SEALs watched it and then the doctors finished. And then the doctors went over to the SEALs and said, hey, these are some of the best surgeons in the world. They said, hey, what do you, what did you think? What did you notice of the way our team worked together? And the SEALs just did a face palm. I mean, they just put their heads in their hands and they said, we can't believe that you guys would do this incredibly intricate operation with 11 people doing all different things and you'd finish and you'd just walk away and you wouldn't stop, press pause <laughs> and do an AAR and do an after action review and just talk about what went well and what didn't go well. How are you going to learn together if you don't do that? And to their credit, the surgeons <laughs> really got it and now they do them. It's such a simple thing, but it's such a powerful tool. And to me, that's that constant sort of to think of it in terms of cultural calisthenics, you know, like we understand in our bodies that if we are going to be healthy and strong, um, we need to have moments where we feel pain, right? Like if you go to the gym and you don't hurt or if you, you know, run and, and you're not hurting at all, you're not getting better. And actually, that's how it is with these AARs and these other moments, these calisthenic moments that are kind of painful, like they kind of suck. But they bring this huge amount of gain because the next time that group encounters something, they've got um, they're building a shared mental model of what what works and what doesn't work, and not and not having misunderstandings fester. They're, it's clarity to go back to the the first word we started with. It's really about creating clarity. Yeah, everyone knows what the game is. I mean, the two thoughts in what you said there. One is, we actually have a policy of doing debriefs as a company when certain a whole bunch of certain situation happen, and people have to write them up and share them with the company. And they've been a huge sense of learning. And we we said, look, it's fine to make a mistake, but let your mistake, you know, be the guide for someone else. The other right. was, and it was a story. I, it was a story I hadn't heard before. You talked about in the book how that the Osama bin Laden and the SEAL Team Six that they were really worried about this new helicopter. You know, this is the one that that went down and had the problem. So they they trained and practiced a thousand different times and debriefed and went through it. And and that sounded like without that, that mission might have had a very different outcome. I mean, I heard about the helicopter tangentially, but you really went into what happened behind the scenes there. I, I love that story so much. I mean, for me, we all know the story of the raid, but the real story of the raid is how they trained. And Dave yeah. Cooper didn't trust the helicopters. He, he knew they were new. <laughs> he knew they hadn't been tested in combat. And so when it came time to train, and they trained over and over and over again in North Carolina and Afghanistan and in, in, um, in mock-ups of the full compound, um, he repeatedly trained for downed helicopter scenarios. And after each one, they did an AAR. And so they were building this incredible group mind, this model, which isn't, it looks like magic when it plays out, but it's not magic. They built it over and over again with quality reps and quality AARs. So on that night, the helicopter goes down and boom, they have no problem. They solve it all uh, in 39 minutes as if it never happened. It was because they had made themselves vulnerable and that's why they were strong. This is a thing that I think business leaders really need to cue themselves into when you when you hear these examples 
from different industries where the training time to I'll say on stage time is, you know, 10 or a hundred to one. And, and it's just why they're ready. You know, we have the Southwest plane a few weeks ago. I just wrote about it last week. And, you know, this pilot who practices landing on one engine for 20 years without never needing that skill. And probably yeah. most pilots have never needed it. And then the, the moment that she needs it, she has it. And, I just think in business, we don't even practice on a, on a one-to-one ratio, the things that we're going to do before right. we do. That's right. That's right. I mean, the value of a quality rep is unbelievable and have a culture that, that supports not only the rep, but the learning that goes alongside it is incredibly powerful. So one of the things that you're probably, we're all fighting with uh, in culture is the, is the Silicon Valley brand of culture, right? Which which makes people think that a great culture is ping pong tables and free food and massage and a lot of superficial benefits, particularly after listening to everything. So how do we change the vernacular around that? Or how do we get that to be relabeled in terms of what culture is and what culture isn't? Yeah, I think you can divide all these kinds of activities into two layers. On the top, there's shallow engagement, shallow fun, right? That's your ping pong table. That's your beers after work. That's these kind of light, genuinely delightful methods of interaction and modes of interaction. It's great. It's a blast to play ping pong at work. That's incredibly fun. It has meaning, but there is another layer beneath it that people do not employ nearly enough. And there's some fascinating research by getting Eli Morgan on this. And you can call it deep fun, you know, deep engagement. And that is when people are involved in the planning uh, for activities and involved in the, in the experience of living in the organization where instead of, of sort of just playing ping pong, you're saying, hey, we're going to have a, a hackathon and we're going to rebuild our HR function, or we're going to give this group a budget and they're going to redesign our, half of our office space, where they get involved in the planning and execution of the daily life in that organization. Because it changes the identity of the people there. They're no longer just sort of uh, you know, a customer at Six Flags. Uh, enjoying the perks, they're actually involved in the building of the perks and the building of the rest of the experience there. So that's the pattern that I saw in in smarter cultures is that that willingness among leadership to be vulnerable and to really share some of those leadership functions with everybody. And the place that conversation starts can often be the conversation about culture to sort of create conversations about who are we? Where are we going? What do you think? Culture emerges from those conversations. It's not something that gets dictated from the top down. Um, and so in constantly you know, seeking a deeper level of engagement um, and deeper conversations about who we are and where we're going and, and who can help us to get there is a path toward deep engagement. So fewer beanbags, more great conversations. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And is it implicit in all these great cultures that anyone is allowed to call out something that is inconsistent with the stated culture? Yes, it is. It really is. And, and it's hard to do. It's incredibly hard to do. It is implicit, incredibly hard to do. And not just things that are inconsistent, but just call out anything anywhere to actually give people a platform. And most of them have got you know weekly meetings where people are encouraged to speak up. And it's incredibly powerful when people do to call out things and question things and, and try to um, and make suggestions. Um, it, it's all got another sort of calisthenic uh, function in terms of creating voice of saying it can be incredibly powerful to have somebody speak up and smart cultures sort of go out of their way to create those moments and embrace those moments. So if you have a leader and they have a new team or newish team, what did you discover in your research that they can do to try to build trust and cohesiveness quickly? Yeah, I think that first day, I mean, we're wired to respond to that first, really forget first day. How about first hour? I think sort of scripting that first hour so that you are clearly opening up to them and allowing them to open up to you a little bit. I I saw it done pretty well at Pixar where basically first day, everybody, if you're a barista, if you're a coder, if you're a director, you go in the auditorium, sit in the fifth row because that's where directors sit apparently. And then the president of Pixar comes up and says, hey, whatever you did before, you're a movie maker now. We need you to help make our films better. That's it this expression of openness and need. And then of course they go to a meeting, a daily meeting where they show a clip uh, of the previous day's footage and anybody in the company can speak up and make improvements to it. They call it plussing. So they, and that's that sort of pattern of everybody together, uh, solving hard problems together um, in kind of a flat way ends up repeating itself over and over and over again. And it's not enough to send that signal once Um, that signal has to be kind of embedded in all of the interactions. And it's impossible to, you know, script it for kind of a universal, universal way. But I would say there are a few basic ingredients there. One is that deep connection of personal safety with the leadership. So they really, you really get to know them and they really get to know you and you're sending a clear signal of connection and safety. The other one is about meaning. Like what, it, what is this group about? What stories, experiences capture what this group is about? Um, I know there's a, a basketball team, the Oklahoma City Thunder. On the first day, the general manager takes the players to the bombing m- memorial from the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, all these you know, 200 people died. And they walk around the memorial together to give the players a better sense of this community and what they've been through. You know, stuff like that, I think, gives uh, is an incredible opportunity that doesn't have anything to do with work and has more to do with, with life and, and uh, the communities of people in which you work can be incredibly powerful. So that sort of connection, safety, openness, vulnerability, and then a shot of a real real clear hit of larger meaning. What's this all about? That would make for a pretty good first hour. When we have a lot of people start, and, and, and I do this sort of cultural onboarding, I ask them sort of have a comparison to past experiences. And we had someone last week talking about how the core values were all over the walls, all over everything. And then no one ever spoke about them <laughs> or talked about them in the, <laughs> in the in the two years at the company or, or, or explain the tangibility. I'm curious if you could answer this question, but do you think, a, what is more dangerous, a consistently poor culture or a culture that says 
one thing and does another, like says we love feedback and then makes it really clear that they don't want feedback. I mean, is it? Oh my God. I would say worse. I would say, I would say it's yeah. a lot worse, you know, cause it opens up the door to any kind of hypocrisy to any kind of bad behavior. Cluelessness is better than hypocrisy. I would say as a, as a general rule, but you're right. Those are all over the place. So being consistently poor. Yeah. Look, I, yeah. I was not a big fan of core values, uh, five, six years ago. I, I didn't believe in it because what I knew of it was, you know, the pictures hanging on the wall. Right. And then I just found some companies that had really operationalized it and realized that was a different thing. But I, but I would say it's 80 to 90% companies feel so great when they get their little picture done and hanging on the wall and it's literally never discussed again. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's about the behavior. It's not about these words. And you know, the words are useful. They can be a North Star at times. But uh, man, oh man, the the it's there are two. If you really and it's interesting because if you distilled all the value statements of so many companies, they're all kind of the same. You know, they're they're, they're mostly like nobody's going to be. No, we're not about high quality, or we're not about good relationships, or we're not about creativity. Like they're all kind of about those same things over and over again. So it's it's not so much that word or that mission statement, but I think there's so many opportunities with, with the storytelling and the behaviors and the habits that you do that's so much more powerful than, than the word on the wall. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think one of the most amazing things you had in the book, it actually gave me a little bit of chill, was when Johnson & Johnson had the, had the Tylenol and the cyanide scandal that the press release explaining the recall started with quoting their, what, 100-year-old credo, literally word for, yeah. word for word, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Incredible. I mean, they, they had built such a clear North Star that when this crisis happened, and any culture can function when there's no crisis, right? You know, but when there's a crisis, yeah. what does the group do? And they had done such a marvelous job of creating this real clear North Star that everyone could behave with this extraordinary cohesion because they knew where North was. And the North was the health of their user. And so when this crisis happens, they don't have to hesitate. They don't have to talk. Uh, they don't have to think. They, they, they simply have to behave in a way that's consistent. But what we typically underrate is because having that conversation in the four years prior is really a difficult crusade to go on for this leader who did it, this guy, James Burke. But that role of somebody in your company who is constantly creating the culture conversation, to me, seems to be one of the more undervalued roles and, and impacts that somebody could make. Because that is going to be the person that everybody has in their head. That's going to be the value that everybody turns to when there's a crisis. And having, having that conversation before and continually is, uh, is incredibly useful. So here's the million dollar question then. Why if Peter Drucker talked about this, people have read about Southwest, Herb Kelleher, your book. Why, if everyone knows or the science says the culture is the differentiator, why do so few companies act upon that? Because our brains are designed to screw us up in this department. Like we're status-oriented creatures and we're constantly worried about our safety. And that's how evolution was built. Evolution wasn't built with corporations <laughs> and, and teams. It was built on much more tenuous ground. And so we have all these alarm systems in our head and all these that are designed to help us, actually. When you get a signal that you're not safe, it's millions of years of evolution say, hey, you're not safe. Maybe you should make a run for it. That, that works until the last few hundred years, right? Uh, and so now we've got these Stone Age brains inside sleek modern corporations, and they're getting signals. Um, so you have to, that's why everything in the end ends up being about these very fundamental tribal moments. Um, where people can say, hey, you're safe. Hey, we, we, we admit weakness here. And that it doesn't, it's something that is incredibly difficult to scale in the end. 
it's really about being in a room with someone that you that you connect with and that you like solving hard problems with. So these problems are not going to go away, you know, these, these, and, and as we were talking about a little bit before, like having a great culture does not mean problems go away. Having a strong right. culture means that you can control them a little bit more. You can anticipate them. You can deal with them when they occur. But it is, if you're looking for a reason why like this is still and will continue to be persistently challenging terrain, it's just because of the disconnect between our, our stone age brain and our, our modern workspace. Yeah, one, one that's not likely to be reconciled anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Based on evolution. So looking back in all of your roles, whether it's working on a team, editor, role as a consultant, I'm curious now if there's a time when you can clearly identify when you failed to follow one of these culture building principles. Oh my God, like my whole life. I think that's one of the reasons that, I, that, I, that it was so clear to me. I desperately needed it um, at so many junctures in my life. One that pops right to mind is uh, when, I was in, when I was in school, I had to be the editor of this sort of project. It was a big magazine project that took uh, months. You know, the whole, you had a whole staff and everybody made magazine. I was, I was kind of in charge of it and I was awful and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. Like, you know, I was kind of focused on my own expertise. And, you know, at the time, the motto of, of leadership I had in my head was like, captain of the ship, like I steer the boat and I tell everybody where to go. And that, that did not, did not work well because I never created any kind of a safe connection where people understood what we were doing together, or I never sent a signal of, Hey, I don't have all the answers here. Please help me. I was all about being smart. And that ended up just making the project incredibly painful and and difficult and we got a far less than optimal optimal result and i found myself thinking about that a lot um over the years like god if i had only had a better model in my head we might not have made such a such if i a had this book yeah. yeah if only someone had read this book right exactly exactly reminds me of that scene in the movie what about bob when the therapist is looking around for a book and he has 200 of his own book on on the shelf uh, saying, saying, you know, what's that book? I think I know a good book that could help you. That's it. That's it. Any clues for our listeners on your next book? I don't know. I'm still kind of playing around with a few different ideas. <laughs> I don't have anything, anything too, uh, too particular at this moment, but it's, um, but it's fun. It's what's fun is the conversations like this one that, that writing a book can lead, lead you into. And I know that, you know, I'm admiring what I'm hearing about what you're doing. And uh, just it's just cool to be thought, a part of a community like this that can knock around ideas and, and see what comes of it. Yeah, you know, one of the things, not to point you in, in a direction, but I've had this discussion with a lot of authors where I think a lot of the examples used in um, some of the business books now are, tend to be larger organizations. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I'm seeing a lot of the small and medium-sized organizations have mm -hmm. founders that are willing to jump in and make changes and, and have far fewer resources. So I think it'd be interesting in some way to look at what's going on in sort of the SMB landscape in terms of um, the types of things that, that are out there uh, and, and when, how people are able to do things with, with far fewer resources than some of the larger organizations. That's interesting. Right, right. There's something quite tribal about that, that scale that's, uh, that's really powerful. And ultimately, you know, as somebody told me once, like culture is the 15 feet around you. And yeah. that is kind of the, the most high density area of signaling that we're built to do and use and take advantage of and employ. And, and so that is kind of dispiriting on one hand, but it's also kind of empowering too. Like if we can control this 15 feet and make it, make everyone really connected, cohesive and, and open, 
it can be quite a lever to make things happen, even inside a larger organization. All right, great. Well, Daniel, where can people find more about you and your work? Yeah, I have a website called danielcoil.com. That's not a bad place to go. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's an email on there. If you just hit it, it comes to my email. So if anybody wants to chat, please feel more than free. All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Outperform today. Creating a high-performance culture and all that it involves is something we put a lot of stock in at Acceleration Partners. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk about your best-selling book and the research behind it. It's really been an honor uh, having you on with us today. Hey, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, for our listeners, we'll include notes from this episode, links to everything that we talked about in here and to Daniel's books uh, in our show notes. So until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.